Hello, uh, welcome again to my podcast. And today for the second time, I'm interviewing Brian Kaplan. And Brian uh, just co-authored a book that came out. The book is called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. And it is a nonfiction graphic novel, novel that he co-authored with Zach Wienersmith. Uh, hello, Brian, and uh, thanks for coming on my podcast again. Big pleasure to be here again. So you are in this book, you are making the case for complete open borders where the U.S. should pretty much let in anyone other than I imagine people that we know are terrorists or have a history of violent crime. Is that is that yeah, right? Yeah, the, way, the way I describe it is if you don't belong in jail, you can come. OK. Um, and this is something that, uh, you know, Republicans accuse Democrats of secretly <laughs> believing and the Democrats say, oh, no, no, we don't secretly believe that. But you you are making the case you actually do believe this. That's right. And uh, you think that this is most not entirely, but mostly a free lunch, that it will make the future immigrants much better off. But it will also help most Americans. Yeah. yeah. And so what I say is that. It's really a lot like any other major technological transformation where you get an enormous increase in production by letting people move from places where their labor produces little to places where it produces a lot. But as always, those gains don't merely go to the people directly in the growing industries. They get spread around the whole economy just by the virtue of what economists call incidents or what you can just think of as trickle down or I call it you know, Niagara Falls economics. So just like the Industrial Revolution didn't primarily benefit factory owners, but rather created an enormous increase in wealth that was enjoyed by the consumers of that of those products. Similarly, I say open borders would lead to a great outpouring of wealth because we stop wasting so much human talent, which is what the current system really does. Okay. Now, I, I don't agree with all your thesis. First of all, I think this is an excellent book, and what's most impressive is that you do address pretty much all of the major arguments against mm -hmm. this. Even you even go places where most academics would be terrified to go. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, I mean, I thought I thought that was important because you know I think some of the best arguments against immigration are the, are the ones that people are most afraid to publicly make, and rather than just take advantage of the fact, ah, oh, you're too chicken to say your best arguments. I wanted to go and say people's best arguments for them and then deal with them forthrightly. Yeah, and as most of our listeners have probably guessed, these are arguments involving IQ and, and differential crime rates. And, you, and you're right. If you make a great case for something, but you leave out the arguments that everyone knows you're probably afraid to mention, then people are going to think, oh, come on, that's, you know, you're, you're deliberately yeah. strawmanning the argument. So you, you really had to do that to have any hope of convincing people. So I, I yeah, congratulate I mean, you on I that. I mean, here's the thing. You, know, you can convince a lot of people just by demagoguing, and I just don't want to do that. I mean, I know it works a lot of times, but that's not what the business that I'm in. I'm in the business of listening to people and hearing what they have to say and then addressing it directly if I can. Yeah, and this is a, a surprisingly, it's a good, I mean, you'd think, you know, it, it's a graphic novel, it would be superficial, but it, it really isn't. I mean, you're you're very concise with your arguments, so you're not wasting a lot of time, you know, the way most books do, <laughs> saying, well, you know, my sister was talking to her friend, and this is what they thought, and let me tell you the history of my sister. So it's more just right to the point. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So... So, you know, there's a lot of references and endnotes for people that want to see the documentation of the book. But it really is true that a picture is worth a thousand words. This is why I fell in love with the genre. There's a lot, there are a number of other of these nonfiction graphic novels where 
you might think it's only for kids, but you read it and say, no, this is actually, they did a great job. Someone that knows an immense amount about the subject can still read this and say, this is not only accurate, but it actually explains what happened better. I mean, my favorite example is the five volume cartoon history of the universe by Larry Gonick, where, you know, I'm a big student of history and whenever I know a period well, I read his two pages on it and I say, Larry, you did a great job. You know your stuff and you boiled it down in a way that is memorable, but true. Yeah. Yeah, so you did great job. And the illustrations are fantastic. I mean, you know, Zach, your co-author, is a professional cartoonist. These are, you know, as good as it gets. Yeah, so it's, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I say, you know, he is my number one choice in the world. He was, you know, to, to illustrate it, and he exceeded even my highest hopes for what he did. Okay. So um, for the substance, the part I agree with you, and I think most economists would agree, is that this, certainly the people, the immigrants who come here are going to be much better off, and you're mm -hmm. going to be making – a lot of poor people, you're going to increase, we call their utility or their happiness. And mm -hmm. that's, that's something you ever, you have to take into account. Even if you don't like that, you think your country is hurt by immigration, you've got to think, Hey, if we help a billion people get substantially richer, that's a really great thing. Oh yeah. And we, we know that's pretty solid. I mean, there's a huge amount of data of what happens when people from poor <laughs> countries come to rich countries. Do they get wealthier? Yeah, that you really can't argue against that. Yeah, well, plenty of people tried, but <laughs> I mean, number of people saying, "Oh, those poor people in Kuwait, everything's terrible for them." Like, well, why do you think they go there? Do you think they don't have smartphones to go and call their family members and say, "Don't come"? No, they they go there and they see that life is hard by Western standards, but it's great by Pakistani standards, and they call the relatives and say, "I'm trying to figure out a way to get you a job too." Yeah, I mean, you could fool people for a little while, but you can't be, you know, ongoing fool your whole population, you know, where they, they're actually going back home and talking about it. You can't, you know. Yeah. And what are you going to do, confiscate the phone of every single immigrant worker in your country? I mean, you have to be brainwashing them, and I don't think we have the tech to do that yet. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the mistake of saying, well, gee, you know, a, a Bangladeshi in, you know, an oil-rich Middle Eastern country is – not well off by American standards, therefore we shouldn't let that happen. But they're very well off by the standards of where they grew up. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, everything is relative. So, oh, yeah. and, you know, we certainly know with the United States, I mean, we, I don't think any of us really think that when poor people come to America, that most of them are worse off. Yeah. You know, of course, a lot of people will then just focus on what they don't have and, that I mean, again, a lot of the spirit of this book is just really trying to get people to appreciate the perspective of the immigrant and realize that for you know the stuff that Americans consider to be beneath them for billion people on Earth would be the best thing that ever happened to them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, but what's going on? I mean, it is weird if you take someone, say, in Mexico, a, a Mexican peasant doesn't speak English, you know, has a very low standard of living. He crosses the border of the United States and maybe does so illegally, and yet he still can earn much higher salary. What What's going on? His skills haven't increased. He now has far fewer connections. He doesn't know the local language, and he doesn't have protection of the law to a large extent. How How is it that he's able to earn such a higher salary? Right. So you know, both being economists, we know what the answer is. It's got to be his productivity is higher here. But why? And... My usual answer to that is give me a reason why his productivity isn't higher because almost anything relevant is going to be better. It's true. Yeah. So he did like, you know, the language problem, there's that, but 
just you know the level of technology in the U.S. That's an obvious one. Level of capital investment. But you know, a lot of what I say is going on is just there's this much better management management in the U.S. There's this great work that's been done by people like John Van Rieden and Nicholas Bloom on, on just the way that companies in the first world have much better management than the third world. And third world companies are mismanaged if you can get a job there at all. You know, so I'm working on another book on poverty. One of the main things that I kind of knew but now I really appreciate is that it's just not true that in poor countries – People are are suffering under the oppressive rule of big business. And how do we know this? Because most people in third world countries can't get a job in the formal sector at all. The formal sector is very small. There's a very small number of businesses. And the the actual typical kind of thing going on in third world economies is not people working for low wages for big companies. Rather, it's self-employment by people who really are not prepared to be self-employed. So they're not really hooked up to the global economy. They're, yes, yes. They're just they're doing low-skill peasant work. And yes, and, and a lot of times, you know, like, like you know, they'll be doing eight different jobs uh, for a little bit each day. You wake up each morning and you make a few pancakes and sell those to people on the street. Then you go and collect a little bit of garbage. Then you go and maybe you can go and do a little bit of sewing for someone. And you know, that's very typical of poor countries is just lack of formal employment and then cobbling together – a, few, a bunch of very small, very low-paid jobs that you are fine for yourself, right? So, and what happens when people move to the first world is they get brought into this formal employment sector, and they are supervised by people who really know what they're doing. And there's just a great shortage of that in poor countries, which is why the best jobs in poor countries are working for multinationals, where they do understand the way to run a business. So the economic elites in the United States are far more competent than the economic elites in most poor countries. And even mm -hmm. though they're, you know, presumably they're just being selfish, they're better able to utilize, uh, you know, unskilled workers. Right, right. I mean, there's this common sense is not so common. So, again, the kinds of things that Bloom and Van Rieden find is that in poor countries, you're much more likely to have businesses just run on the basis of nepotism. Just going and hiring relatives, whether they can do the job or not. Uh, in U.S. companies, of course, that still happens, but it's much rarer. And then, of course, you have things like just keeping track of whether people show up on time. You might think every business would do it, but they don't. Things like keeping track of inventories. How much stuff do we have and where is it? So they talk about going and visiting businesses in India and seeing that they've got rooms where they've just been throwing valuable equipment and letting it rust and they don't keep track of it. And again, this is not just not just a few stories, but they do very nationally representative surveys of business and just find that we have just that business, even the basics are not obvious. They're not easy for most human beings to do. And a lot of the difference between rich and poor countries is if you've got the critical mass of people that have their act together. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I, I understand why there's so much nepotism in, in businesses in poor countries is because they're very low trust societies. So you're more likely to trust your brother or even your second cousin because if he steals from you, you know, you can get the family to punish him. Yeah, there's probably something going on there, but here's the really striking fact. When multinationals are welcomed with open arms, they do really well even in third world countries despite the fact that the workers are the same as the other workers in the country. And in particular, you might think that what – Multinationals do is they have, say, you know, Danish multinational sends a Danish management team to run people in India. 
And that's not actually the long-run plan of most multinationals. Normally what they do is they train a new domestic managerial group, and then they do keep in constant contact with the Danish mother corporation. But really, multinationals usually are people from that country, managing people in that country, but after they've received a lot of training about how to do it right, and basically after you let the, after you download your software to their machine, is the way you can think about it, is you take this software of management style and you download it over to India, and it runs on an Indian system with Indian people, even though you might think that the trust just isn't high enough. So, I mean, it, I mean, it is really impressive how much multinationals can accomplish in societies where you might say, look, they just don't have the right stuff to do it. But it seems like if you combine a little bit of know-how of the best knowers in the world with human beings almost anywhere, you can get to really high levels of productivity. And, you know, that's what's so neat about their work. Um, I, from what I remember from grad school, a big paradox of economic growth is that why, why hasn't that mostly equalized incomes? Oh, why? yeah. And right. So, I mean, I think I mean, a lot a lot of the story is just that third world countries don't welcome multinationals. Uh, so the ones that do have, you know, like Singapore, of course, have done so much better. And then, you know, there's different levels of welcome. So you can officially say there's no hindrance to you. We want you here. But then on the ground, there can still be bureaucrats demanding handouts and corruption. So there can be a lot of different ways that you are unofficially preventing multinationals from coming and transforming your country. But I remember, you know, many years ago, I talked to Jean Van Rienen over lunch, and I said, all right, so back of the napkin estimate, if multinationals could just take over the entire global economy, what would this do to the production of mankind? And I, he went and did it in his head, and he said, all right, plus 50%, which is a neat number to me because that's just about half of what the estimate of the gains of open borders are. And, you know, so it's basically, you know, like, you know, if multinationals could run the world economy, it would be doing half of what you could do by just keeping the current system and letting people move freely. So in a sense, your thesis is we should have a lot more people working for Walmart. If Walmart isn't yeah. allowed to go in those countries, we'd let the people yeah. come here and work for Walmart. Yes. So, I mean, you know, the, uh, the main issue there and like, why can't we just get all the gains by having multinationals move is that so much of the world economy is services. I was just rechecking the numbers. It's now up to 80% services of, for U.S. GDP. So with services, the only way to really trade them normally is by physically being close to the customers. You can't be my nanny from Mexico. You can't go and mow my lawn from Mexico. You can't serve me restaurant meals from Mexico. And so it's not sufficient to have Walmart move to Mexico, but that, you know, that gets you a lot of the way. But if you want to go and serve U.S. customers at Walmart, you got to be here in the U.S. or else the trade can't happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, a, a criticism of your argument, and you certainly address this at length, is what you call the golden goose argument. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we, the open borders would do such a great job because our capitalist class is so much better. But would you be risking that if you allowed a lot of people from countries that didn't have a competent capitalist class, would they be importing some problems? So one simple example is like, a lot of immigrant because we were open to immigrants from Sicily, we got the mafia, and mm -hmm. that partially corrupted our politics. Mm -hmm. How do you know that we, you know the people wouldn't be bringing their problems with them to the extent that it would harm our economy by damaging our institutions? And again, I want to say to readers, Brian addresses this at length in his book, so this isn't something I'm just bringing up that he hasn't thought of or is afraid to mention. 
Yeah, so the honest answer is, of course, they're going to bring their problems with them. The question is, how much of their problems will they bring? How severe will it be? And that's most of what I try to do in the book is just to see, all right, there's going to be something that comes along with them. I mean, you know, anytime that you let in some tourists, you're going to let in someone that's going to commit a crime. Maybe it's going to be, the question is, what's the rate going to be? How severe will the problem be? So that's what I do try to focus on. So, I mean, you know, so for the case of crime there for the U.S., there's quite good numbers. And the punchline is that in the U.S., it is not true that people from high crime countries go and have crime rates that are ma- that are massively higher than the U.S. Instead, averaging over all the governments we have, we uh, they, they have considerably lower crime rates than native-born Americans, about a third lower. Right um, now, in the book, one of the things that I didn't uh, you know, didn't wind up doing be, uh, for space constraints is, t- is comparing immigration in Europe and the U.S. In Europe, it probably is true that, their, that the cr- immigrant crime problem is worse than here in the U.S. And the basic story I'm, I'm now convinced is this: U.S. has high has, has high crime rates, and therefore, when we let in immigrants, they're medium and they're less bad than us. On the other end, Europe generally has really low crime rates, especially for serious crime. And so when they let in immigrants, they're worse than they are. But basically, you know, Americans are bad and then immigrants are in the middle and then Europeans are good in terms of violent crime. And so immigrants seem bad, or, you know, bad compared to Europeans, but they're still good compared to Americans. And, and then I step back and say, if you're not afraid of the average American, then you really shouldn't be afraid of the average immigrant. Okay, um, I have a statistical question, though, about the crime data. What is that controlling for? I mean, immigrants tend to be younger, and you know, young people commit vastly more violent crimes. So was this like comparing a, an immigrant to the average American, or was it comparing an immigrant to a similarly situated American when you say crime rates, when you compare crime rates? Let's see. So the simple answer is, of course, people do it a bunch of different ways. So, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, so the numbers that I had are from the U.S. Census, and so I, uh, so see, I did this a couple years ago, but I believe what I got is you've got the share of the foreign-born population in prison relative to the U.S.-born population. So now you're right that since immigrants tend to be young there's an adjustment you could have made, which then would have said that immigrants adjusted for age are actually even better than Americans because immigrants do come from this high crime age group. But yeah, so I'm 90% sure that what I was doing is I just looked at what's the foreign born share in prison and what's the foreign born share of the U S population. And then said that there's a lower share in prison than the U S population. Right. I noticed this of course includes estimates of the illegal population mm-hmm. and you know, fun fact, if you think there's a lot more illegal immigrants in the U.S. than official stats say, then this means that their crime rates are actually even better than they look. Because, you know, if there were 100 million under, like hidden illegal immigrants in the U.S., uh, and yet we know who's in prison, so this would mean that they would have much lower crime rates than they appear. So that's sort of a little debating point, but it is kind of funny. Yeah, no, that is a good point. Um what if we could use statistical analysis to say, hey, this person is, you know, five times more likely to commit a violent crime than the average American? Would you be in favor of discriminating against these groups as immigrants? Yeah, for five times, no. I mean, if it was 100 times, yes. So, I mean, I mean, here's the thing is males in the U.S. have nine times the crime rate of females, and yet no one thinks that that justifies preemptive detention of males or even V-chipping us or – you know, making us go and have something on our phones so the government knows where we males are all the time, 
right? I mean, we got nine times the crime the the, the, well, the, yeah. the crime rate of females, so that seems like people are are willing to say that it's just too oppressive of a human being who's done, as far as we know, nothing, just to say nine times. But there is a number, and yeah, so like a hundred times, that seems like enough. Okay, but that's part of why I think that it would really be easy to do. I mean, it, we could. You know, men are vastly more likely to commit crimes. Poor people are more likely to. I'm sure crime differs a lot by ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. So we really could be sort of moneyballing this and saying, look, yeah. you are much. I mean, this wouldn't be that challenging to say, you know, I'm 20 times more co- likely that you're going to commit a violent crime than this other immigrant. And why? Yeah. Why are? I mean, if there, I, I know your goal is sort of maximize the benefit of all mankind. But if someone just said, no, I just want to do what's best for American citizens, mm-hmm. wouldn't you be playing this game? I mean, we can't get, we, you know, we could we could easily find American men who are like, yeah, you are, we'd be better off if you weren't in our country. But that's not something that we're allowed to do constitutionally. But we could do it with immigrants. Why Why not do that? If Again, assuming your goal, your moral goal was to maximize the benefit of immigration to Amer- current Americans. Right. I say so, I mean, in principle, you're absolutely right. There is the issue of if you have a fundamental moral principle, at what point should you bend it? Right. So, you know, just in terms of, you know, what Thomas Schelling talked about with focal points, you know, the rule of, you know, you can't be go, we can't be punished unless we actually have specific evidence that you've done something violent or otherwise criminal. You know, there there is a great just utilitarian value in having that as a principle. And if there you could make one exception to that, it would probably be very unwise to do it because then you are taking away the transparency and clarity of the system, and then there's all the possibilities for abuse. So you know, you know what I would say is that. You know, we are so negative towards immigrants already that I do think that what you're talking about would in practice be grossly abused and would be worse than just flinging the doors open. But on the other hand, like I say in the book, I'm not someone that wants to make the best the enemy of the good. So if someone says, all right, we'll let everybody in as long as their their, their demographic crime rate is below the American average, that's the kind of thing where I would say, okay, so that's way better than what we got. Although, again, as economists, we know that there's something that's always better than that which is to go and name a price. So instead of saying your crime rate's too high, you can't come, say your crime rate's too high, so if you want to come here, you're going to have to post a bond so that we feel comfortable having you here. And that's something where you can really, you can basically shave off a lot of the rough edges of a policy where you just say no way, no can do. Yeah, we, we could have everyone who wants to immigrate here say, look, you can only come here if you post a bond where you know mm-hmm. the government gets money if you commit a crime or if you become a health burden. And perhaps yeah. your, your future employer could could pay this. Right. And I think I think a lot of people who are not economists will say, well, that's basically closing the border by other means. But for economists like us, we realize, wait a second, once you can do this legally, there's going to be a credit market mm-hmm. and there are going to be lenders who are going to be very happy to go and do a business analysis and say, yeah, you don't have any money right now. But once you get here, you're going to be doing so well. We think that you that we are, we've gone to our actuaries and they say you, you're totally a good investment. So that's you know, part of the reason why I'm so willing and and, uh, and eager to say, oh, fine, let's compromise on this. Is that I don't think in the end it would actually lead to very many restrictions because it, once the, once it's legal, then credit markets are going to be stepping right up, and you know, we already know about the great sophistication of 
for the first world lending industry. They often know more about your risk than you do yourself. So I really think that this is not something that would just cut off the world's poorest from opportunity. Rather, it would quickly create an industry that would help them to get the gains basically like everybody else. Yeah, and this would incentivize the insurance industry to figure out what kind of immigrants are, are likely to commit yeah. crimes, and they would yeah. certainly go beyond skin color and age. They would, yeah, know, of course, yeah. And and so we we we'd learn a lot about this, and we could and update and, our and, views and about gender, obviously. Any dummy yeah. could go and say, "Let's let in women; they don't kill people." But <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, definitely. So, what though under your proposal? I mean, what I would be afraid of is China would say. Well, okay, let's take everyone who is a burden to our economy, you know, the 80-year-olds, the, the, the people with long-term health problems, and we'll just ship them to the United States. Mm -hmm. We'll get rid of our, you know, and everyone and all the violent criminals in our prison. We'll get rid, we'll, we'll just, you know, ship the, the 10 million least valuable Chinese citizens to the United States on day one of this policy. Yeah, so that's, of course, what people accuse Castro of doing with the Muriel boat lift, right. where, yes, um, you know, what I say is, you know, Actually, under U.S. law, so those people wouldn't be eligible for Social Security. They would probably be able to get Medicare if they were here, but you know, it would not be a. It would, it would be. I mean, essentially, they you know they they would actually be you know, homeless if they were to come. Now, China, you know, like you know, for a modest number, they could do this. But here's the thing: is for you know, in general, the elderly do not like moving to a new country by themselves. Mm -hmm. It's almost unheard of, actually. So you might say that China would go and round them up and you know throw them on planes against their will. Uh, you know, I think the you know, government of China will do that to some Uyghurs in the remote West. I don't think they're going to do that to the Han, the overwhelming Han population in known areas. That's uh, so. But you know, like in, in principle, they could. Again, you know, like my honest reaction would be, you know, I'm happy to have you because your kids are going to come too, and they are going to take care of the elderly people, and they're going to be great contributors. So, you know, especially in societies that are as brutally unfair as China. I think there's just a lot of talent that is not in the elites and they're not Communist Party members and it's just hard to go and rise in that society. So, you know, like that's where I would you know, in no way be afraid of them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, logically, you can you can weave a scenario where that happens. I just don't think it's too realistic. Really? I mean, I think it's very realistic that, that China would just say there's these people who are a burden to us. Well, you want them fine. Yeah, so, the, you know, like, you know, like, that, you know, like, that China would say they can leave if they want. I can believe that. But again, I just don't think that, that, that they want to. If you think China is going to say, tough luck, we're, we are expelling you from the country, that I don't think is going to happen to the, uh, you know, to like, you know, elderly Han Chinese. These people have, you know, regular, the Han Chinese family members younger. They are part of the group that the government take, you know, is most likely to care about. I mean, I would say, you know, so like I would think it'd be great if we could get all the Uyghurs. So tell China, like, you know, you think these people are human garbage. Well, we want them. We're happy to get them. And we think that we can integrate them into American society and give them a better life and, you know, do well while doing good. Now, so, I, I know yeah. almost nothing about the Uyghurs other than they're being, <laughs> you know, horribly treated. So this I don't mean this. To, this sounds yeah, awful. But shouldn't we first figure out why China is doing this to the Uyghurs before we let them move to the United States? And again, yeah. I really don't know that they've ever done anything yes, bad. I'm just saying. Yeah, so, so I, 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 I actually, you know, well, I, I don't speak Uyghur or anything, mm -hmm. but I'll, I'll still so I'll put myself in the 99.99th percentile for American knowledge of Uyghurs. Probably not that hard. But yeah. Yes, it's not that hard to be there. But yeah, so you know, basically, you know, 
the proximate cause of this is that there was an extremely tiny amount of Uyghur terrorism involving stabbings. And then the totalitarian government of China decided that they should go and take millions of people and punish them for the crimes of about 20 people. And that's what they've been doing ever since. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've got no concerns. I mean, I think they would actually do great here. OK. Do you think there'll be less assimilation if we allow a huge number of people to come in and they could certainly all live in the same city? Right. So a lot of it depends on where their country of origin is. So if it's all if it's 100 million people from China, then I think there'd be less assimilation. If you've got a lot of people from a lot of different countries, then the English languages and English and American cultures are still the focal things to do. And that's what people are going to train their kids for. So I wouldn't be worried about that at all. So, you know, like, I mean, basically, you know, like you know, what I say is like, you know, for any story that people have about the dangers of open borders, it could be true. Right. If you turn the dials of the thought experiment to to the right levels, you know, say like turn it up to 11, then I think the complaints make perfect sense. It's just as to whether in reality it is reasonable to think that we'll have those kinds of scenarios. That's what I think is very unlikely. And especially in terms of getting large numbers of immigrants, uh, there's this great work that's been done on diaspora dynamics that I talk about in the book. And it basically asks the question, so once you open a border, how does immigration work, right? And you know, one view is that you know, people just don't want to move and it won't happen. Another view is there'll be a giant instant flood. But the real story that we see is that there's a snowballing, where it's usually when you first open a border, when there's no one from a country in your country, it starts off with just the few bravest souls that are willing to be the first Uyghurs in Denmark, say. But once they're there... Then there's some others that are still very brave, but not quite as brave as the first ones who say, OK, well, now that my cousin's there, I'll try it. And then it builds and builds and builds, and it takes decades for this to happen. So in the book, I talk about open borders to Puerto Rico. In 1902, the U.S. Supreme Court has a ruling that opens the border between U.S. and Puerto Rico. And in the first decade, only a couple thousand Puerto Ricans come. And you might say, well, of course, they don't want to go and leave country where uh, leave their country where to go to a place where it's cold and where they don't speak the language but what you see is the next decade then there's way more i think there's like 20,000 that come and the next decade after that there's a lot more 30s because of the depression very few come but then you do see the snowballing so now over half of all people of puerto rican descent live in the u.s and so we have realized these great gains of moving people from a low productivity to high productivity country but it did take 100 years for this enormous transformation. And so each wave is getting assimilated. The first generation ones kind of and the second generation ones almost totally. Yeah, although this would you'd imagine go much, much faster if there was a natural disaster or, or if there's a persecuted yeah, yeah. political group. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that 90 percent of Jews in the old Soviet Union have left. Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, of course, even you know, even there, it did take a couple of decades and that's one where it's not just open borders, but rather when you show up in Israel, the government really does roll out the welcome mat for you. But yeah, I mean, so like if condition, if there's, you know, if, you know, but I mean, even there, I would say though that a lot of it, it was that snowballing mechanism because Israel had been bargaining and begging the Soviets to go and let out Jews for about 30 years before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so there was actually a pre-existing Russian-speaking community of considerable size in Israel, which then really does make people a lot more interested in changing their country. Mm -hmm. um, I also think like maybe non-governmental organizations, like you know, 
charities might get into this where they might go to an African country and say, hey, look, anyone who wants to come to the United States will pay for the transport. Just yeah. be at this particular point at this time. You know, here are the points and you could you could quickly get whole villages saying, hey, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go myself, but if all of you were going, I'd like to go too. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, I mean, so like, like in general, you know, we, we both know about the relative sizes of the for-profit and, and uh, NGO sector, mm -hmm. and especially like the inter international charity is generally quite low on the pecking order of what people in the first world want to give money to. People would probably rather give money to the arts in America than start <laughs> kids in Africa if you really want to be honest about it. But yeah, I mean, that's another piece of the puzzle. You know, again, like the, you know, what would well, you know, that's the kind of thing where I would say, okay, I guess that can help. But on the other hand, you know, the American credit industry, that's not just lending a little helping hand. That is a force that is ready to go and transform the world if you go and pull out the stops. Mm -hmm. um, do we have to be worried about like a reverse Texas situation? As I'm, as I'm sure you know, Texas is part mm -hmm. of America because Mexicans were willing to let a lot of Americans move to Texas. Then the Americans in Texas are like, you know, we're a culturally a better fit for America, in part because America allowed slavery and Mexico didn't. <laughs> so they're like, well, let's just rebel against Mexico. And they did with, you know, soft support of America. And, of course, they joined us. You could kind of understand Mexico saying, hey, why don't a whole bunch of people, Mexicans, move to Texas? We'll get a majority. Then we'll declare we want to be Mexican now. We want to leave the United States. And probably America... You know, most people in the state wanted to leave nowadays. We probably would let them rather than have another civil war. Yeah, so speaking of scenarios where you turn up the dials to extreme levels. Well, yeah, but that, that yeah. happened. I so, mean, you know, you know, a <laughs> key thing to know about Texan secession from Mexico is that there was an extremely sparsely populated area of Mexico. So Mexico really was letting people into almost uninhabited area. Uh, so, And then, of course, there's also the big difference of the – Settlers are much richer and more technologically advanced than the country that they are being ruled by. So, and then they got a big ally over in neighboring U.S. So you put all those dials there and you can get that. But I mean, in terms of thinking of actual examples of countries where it's been a richer country and then they let in some migrants and then the migrants rebelled to go and accede to the poorer country. And I, I, there's got to be some example somewhere in history, but well, certainly if we go back to the Roman Empire, we have the Goths yeah. coming. Well, in. Well, I mean, you know, even there, the Goths don't want to go and and uh, and go and swear fealty to some to some German lords. They want to go and take over Rome militarily. But you know, again, it's a very different situation. Yes, uh, yes. That was... the, you, know, you know, the I mean, the actual story is pretty fascinating because you've got a bunch of Germans that are fleeing from the Huns, I believe. Yeah. And the Romans put them into the worst refugee camps I've ever heard described where it's, they're basically just not just prison camps, but like giant rape centers. And then the, uh, the, then they rebel. And once they rebel against their captors, then the German army says, all right, well, given what the Romans have done to us, let's go South and loot and pillage and rape them. And that's the specific story there. I mean, when you go and read Edward Gibbon, you, you look at that. So it really seems like the, the German refugees were, very willing to go and work with the Romans just to get away from the Huns. And then the Romans just treated them so horribly, right? You know, again, right. obviously not justifying the burning of Rome or anything like that, but still it's one where a little bit of humanity shown towards the German refugees would have gone a really long way towards taking some people that you know, seem like they were actually very well situated to become part of the Roman defense forces mm -hmm. and instead turn them into enemies for, for, you know, even for 
just you know, very narrow reasons of the you know, poor control of the of, of the horses. I mean, my guess is that if the Roman emperors had known what was going on, they would have said, wait, you're going and creating a bunch of problems for the rest of this country. No, we don't want you going and treating the German refugees like your own personal sex slavery center. But anyway, so if you read Reb Gibbon on this, you can really see it's, a, it's quite a story. I'm like, oh my God, that's what happened. Yeah, but you got to factor in political incompetence, though, right? I mean, we're we're, we're going to mistreat yeah. if we have open borders. A lot of the refugees will be mistreated. They'll certainly private citizens will mistreat them. There'll be legitimate grievances that they have. Hopefully, not as bad as with the Gaza. Yeah, had, but well, again, remember we have television now. So if they had, had television in Rome, I think it'd be a very different story. So television is terrible for publicizing statistical harms. It's really terrible for publicizing harms in areas where you can't get easy access to television. So like the Uyghurs are not on TV every night. But if there's any ugly thing that's happening right before you're you know, right in plain view in the U.S., that'll be on television. So, you know, yeah. but, but television can make it worse because, you know, mm -hmm. there'll be a small number of horrible things that happen to the immigrants. And if those small number of things are played over and over again <laughs> and the immigrant community sees those and you know, like everyone, almost everyone else, we're not good at statistical reasoning. You can create a lot of grievances that way. Yeah. So I say like the really bad stuff, you know, for refugees happens when they arrive and that's where they've got so little political influence that what really matters is how the natives feel. Although certainly I'm on board with you on the general idea of television not being a generally great force for making better policy. Yeah. But you know, when there are you know egregious harms like there's a there's a place where refugees are being raped. That's the kind of thing television is good at showing. But yeah, it's true. If there are you know basically like you know if there's a, a if there's a huge problem that you can easily show, television's good at that. Problem is if there's a really small problem that television can easily show, they show that, and you can often uh, hard to tell the difference between a very rare event that makes a great story and a recurring event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, well, let, let's. Talk about political views. I mean, the immigrants, or at least their children, would get to vote. And as you 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 say in the book, you know, low skilled immigrants have very anti market and sort of anti freedom political views. Does it scare you that we'd be adding a lot of people to the voting rolls? Right. So you know, var varies too much, but you know, notably, notably. Mm -hmm. So, and by the way, this is something where there's a lot of people complaining about the political views of immigrants. And when I go and try to actually find the research. Usually I just have trouble finding anything that anyone has done. So I'm in this strange position where I first have to go and make the case of the people who are worried for them mm -hmm. and then evaluate and then evaluate it. Now, it's kind of a thankless job because someone that disagrees can say, well, sure, we're not going to trust Brian. He doesn't want to find something negative. But I say, well, who are you going to trust? Because no one else is doing their job. Uh, at least I did the, did the job and I'm transparent about what I've done. You can go and look at the references and you can replicate my work. You're right on your home computer, because a lot of this is on the General Social Survey, right? But anyway, uh, you know, main things I say there. So it is true that uh, that among you know, foreign-born high school dropouts, which are you know, with, you know that you can see that they are notably more economically liberal than Americans. So I'd say you you put them in like the like the 75th percentile of economic liberalism, and they're also notably more socially conservative than Americans. You put them in like the 80th percentile of the native-born population. So these are not small differences. It's not night and day either. You know, remember, we're talking about you're in a different percentile. You know, you're different than, than, the, than the typical American, but it's, this does not mean that you are out of this world. Uh, but still, you know, like I, like I said in the book, I look at that. That does concern me. 
you know, the main issues there are, you know, first of all, you know, do they actually, you know, do, do they actually vote? Mm-hmm. Right. And there what I show is that the very group that has the views that are most worrisome has votes, uh, rates of voter turnout that are about as low as any group I've ever studied. So something like 25% of foreign born high school dropouts who are legally allowed to vote bother to do so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they, and then, you know, there, there's this interesting work on you know, how responsive the American government is to different groups. And, while there's some debate about the details, one thing that I haven't found anyone who, who, the, who denies who's looked at the data is that the U.S. government just doesn't pay very much attention to the opinions of the poor. So you're, you're kind of taking the, the democratic talking point that the rich control the government and saying, <laughs> you know, that's actually good because they'll have better views that if they we, we pay attention to what poor people want. Yeah. So, you know, I say like I think the, the accurate some of the research is government primarily pays attention to the middle class and the rich and ignores the rest of the rest of the population to a large extent. Um, anything you know, like, you know, so like, you know, my first book, The Myth of Rational Voter, this is the kind of thing where I just say, well, let's not hastily judge what's going on, because, yes, if you think that everyone votes for their objective self-interest, then you should say this is going to give you a democracy where people screw over the poor. But. You know, there's two things to wonder about. First of all, is it even true that people vote their self-interest? Mm-hmm. And a lot of work on this in political science, finding that there's just surprisingly little evidence for that. Instead, it seems like people generally vote their ideals. And then there's the question of, all right, people vote their ideals, so who knows best about how to actually realize those ideals? And, you know, what we see is that particularly more educated people just have higher levels of political knowledge. So, you know, my view is that since there's very little difference in actual political ideals among people, but there are large differences in their knowledge, that, um, in fact, you know, this result that's usually seen as a problem for American democracy is really one of the reasons why it's tolerable, mm-hmm. is that the people that vote just have, and the people that, not only people that vote, but also the people that government listens to, are the people whose views are less crazy than the population overall. Although, I mean, I have a very... A, a doleful view of, uh, of of almost all voters in terms of you know what grades would they deserve in an econ class mm-hmm. or Arch- grade, Arch- what grades would they deserve in a science class what grades would they deserve in any politically relevant class um aren't you afraid though that immigrant groups will congregate in areas and then elect someone who does represent their views and we're seeing this i think in minnesota with i'm sure i forget ilion someone of far left-wing somali i mean she seems very smart but she also would you know, mm-hmm. like to turn this into a social socialist country. Yeah, and that would, I think, both of us would agree that actually happened. That would destroy the golden goose. Yeah, it's just a question of how likely is that really. So I'm not actually sure about her district. My guess is actually that it's white liberals that are, have elected her and not the Somalians. Well, who that, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of socialists among white people, and if they get to form right, right. alliances, yes, yes. With, that would be that would destroy us. I think. Right. Actually enacted yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So if it were a whole Congress full of her, then then I agree. You know, it's just a question of how likely is the problem, how severe is the problem likely to be empirically. There were, of course, a lot of ethnic uh, machine politics going on in the U.S. during the age of really high immigration, and you know, I would say that probably the results were not great uh, in at least the most famous cases. But on the other hand, like you know, it never got to anything very, uh, that was really bad either. So, again, it's the kind of thing where I say, yeah, I wish that the poster child for Somalian immigrants was 
a free market economist in the U.S. Congress, and that's not what we got. And yeah, I mean, I do think that it is very unfortunate that a spokesman for Somalians is someone with views that are really so unappreciative of what has made the America a country that people around the world really want to live in. But on the other hand, I just don't think that's likely to be a big problem empirically. Um, so, you know, again, the reason why we're talking about her, of course, is that she's so unusual. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I'm afraid, I mean, if you look again, like the social justice warriors who, you know, mostly are, are whites who say, you know, capitalism is bad, white people are bad. And then you have immigrants who said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And we've admitted a whole bunch of people who end up hating, you know, white capitalists. And that, that probably won't go well for our country. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there are very deep conflicts within that coalition because the foreign born are also, also more socially conservative than native born Americans. So, I mean, a lot of the alliance really depends upon social justice warriors looking the other way at the social conservatism of for the foreign born, which, you know, as long as they are out of power, they can they can probably pull off. But when they actually have to make decisions, then it does create a lot of conflict uh, between them, which, again, if you don't think it's if you think the group is bad, then the fact that they have trouble working with, amongst themselves is actually a good thing. Um but yeah, so again, like you know, logically, could it you know could it get could it be a really big problem? Yes, I just don't see in the data that this is likely, nor in a past experience. So again, you might take a look at Italian ethnic politics in some U.S. cities during the golden age of immigration, and say, just think of what could happen if the entire uh, United States becomes the city of Chicago run by Al Capone, right? Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, that is a scenario. It's like, oh my God, that's a pretty scary scenario. But on the other hand, we never got even remotely close to that. Right. So I just, you know, so it's something where, you know, I don't want to just say that you shouldn't be concerned at all. It's the kind of problem where the best way to deal with it is just to be aware of the risk and see what you can do about it in order to keep it under control. But still saying, well, because of people like Al Capone, we want to end immigration from Italy. That's the kind of thing where I say that's just a gross overreaction. This is going and blaming a whole lot of people for the crimes of few. And furthermore, that, you know, not just from the point of view of Italians, but the point of view of natives, all the gains that we have from dealing with the vast majority of Italians have got nothing to do with the mafia. Mm-hmm. Well, would you be in favor of first conducting an experiment? I mean, pick some mm-hmm. city put a wall around it say anyone <laughs> can move to the city well yeah i guess we'd have to change the constitution so their children don't become u.s citizens and then just do it for 10 years and see what happens yeah totally yes yeah, so you'll give me an experiment i'm very happy to take an experiment the i mean what i really think would happen actually is that what i say would turn out to be totally true but the media would paint it as a disaster because they aren't looking at the right measures so I think what really happened is you would have a huge population influx. There'd be enormous economic activity. But then you would find a bunch of stories about an immigrant went and committed a horrible crime. And so it's a disaster. You yeah, know, you, you probably yes, would have a lot of poor poor people living on the streets who'd be better off where they were at home. So it would be declared, oh, look, there's all this poverty. Yeah, and they would yes, or be much better off, yeah, much better off than where they were at home. And yet their lives aren't great. And the people would say, this is terrible. And I say, look, compared to what? Again, you've really got to look at that. And again, honestly, this is my view of when people say, oh, how terribly mass immigration has worked out in Europe. I say, first of all, it isn't mass immigration. It's a very tiny percentage of the population of the EU is from outside the EU. But furthermore, the, you, know, you know, the stuff you're complaining about is really 
weird and disturbing stuff that hardly ever happens. And that's why you see it on TV. And, you know, so I've spent a lot of time in Europe walking around. I go through places. People say, oh, that's a no-go zone. It's like, you're crazy. This is not a, like I'm walking through here. I don't really I see police here. What in the world are you talking about when you say it's a no-go zone? That is an urban legend. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the popularity of it just comes from the fact that the, the phrase rhymes, no-go. If you didn't have that poetry, then I don't think that this urban legend would have spread very far. But of course, I mean, you work in Washington D.C., which has a horrific crime rate, and so what you're, what's normal for you would be horrifying for a Swede. Yeah, yeah, so, so yeah, so I mean, D.C.'s crime rate is not that high anymore. But yeah, I mean, if you go back 20 years, then then yes, it was quite bad, and to the point where people would move away from D.C. in order to avoid the crime. So I mean, in a way, you know, like you know, partly because of my view, I think that the real test of whether conditions are bad or whether people will move in order to get away from them. So if all you do is complain, then I say, eh, cheap talk. But if you actually sell your house and go away, that's all right. Now that's a problem that you take seriously and then I should take it seriously. Yeah. So, yeah, and in terms of, you know, Sweden, the, you know, like the level of crime that we would regard as almost nothing, they get very disturbed by. Yeah, that's true. Again, I go again. I think it's primarily they're disturbed by stories rather than statistics. Right. Which, you know, again, is, you know, a basic fault with human beings. But I think a lot of what we economists are supposed to do is to try to be the battering ram against anecdotes and say, look, these are these anecdotes. I understand they're emotionally affecting. They get on TV. But what do they show? Very little compared to when we go and look at overall stats. Mm-hmm. Well, what isn't just an anecdote, I, I'm, I'm guessing, is you have lost some freedoms. And for example, criticizing the Muslim prophet Muhammad. That is something where you should be legitimately afraid to do. So there's like a wall. There's a, a play on Broadway that mocks the Mormons. I think yes. there was a play that was mocking yeah. Muhammad that I, I would be afraid to work there. And I don't think that would be silly yeah. of me. And we've we've lost that in part because of immigration. Now, you can argue, well, that's not that big a deal, but that's still something. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's uh, so very bad. I mean, I would say even without immigration, I think people would be afraid today. <laughs> so you like is there could be a tourist or something like that so yeah. uh, you know so i think there there would be that fear and you know even even without immigration but yeah i think immigration has, has made it worse uh so again the question is you know, what is the right response to that is it to go and punish millions of innocent people or is it to say like can we figure out some way of going and dealing with that uh, so, I mean, I will say I can remember being a kid in the 80s and that was uh, and the you know, level of religiosity, even in Southern California, was still high enough that you really would need to be worried about criticizing Christianity then as to whether you'd be afraid of being at, you know, like, I don't think you, you wouldn't be afraid of being murdered for it. Yeah. As a kid, you'd definitely be afraid of, of being beaten up for it. That's oh. yeah. So like, like you know, I don't I don't know how, how you know, like, so you're probably a bit younger than me. At least uh, if your photo here on Skype is. Oh uh, no, I'm I'm older than you. I'm oh, you 50. are. Older. I'm so, past fifty. So okay. So <laughs> anyway, so I don't I don't know where you were growing up, but you yeah, know, I, you would think of of my suburb of Southern California as being one of the more tolerant places in the U.S. But back then, the level of religious traditionalism was still enough that it was not safe physically to just go and shoot your mouth off about being an atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, on the one end, so you like, you know, does that mean that it's okay that people be afraid to go and do a musical making fun of the Quran? Uh, no, it's not. But just to realize it's not some kind of transformation where we used to have full freedom to shoot our mouths off and now we don't. And I think a lot of what's gone on is that the things that are taboo have changed over time. 
Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Um, are, you're not though afraid that we regress to the world's mean in terms of freedom, right? We... Well, yeah, a little afraid, but uh, you know, there's again, there's you know, to my mind, we should always count the freedom of the of the migrant, and again, you know, this is to me and my mind, this is not just a small abridgment of their freedom to say you have to stay, you know, like you, you can't leave Haiti. In my mind, that is you know, one of the very worst things you can do. It's not as bad as putting you in prison for your life, but you know, the thought experiment is. Suppose you could either be stuck in Haiti for life or be in prison for X years. Yeah. Right? At a U.S. prison. What value of X makes you indifferent? Yeah, I know. That, that's yeah, certainly true. I think for certainly, me, like five, five years, five years of prison versus spending the rest of my life in Haiti is, I think, about where I would be. I don't know. Where do you think you would be? No, I mean, that that seems reasonable. I mean, we're, I'd have to study about violence in prison. Am I just going on the anecdotes? Like, how likely would I be? Here? Yeah, yeah, well, obviously it depends. <laughs> can, I, can I go to Camp Cupcake or yeah. do, I back to, you know, do I go to Supermax? Where where am I? But but yeah, so, you know, what you know, what first world law does to people who are who choose the wrong parents and are born in poor countries, it's not just a small thing for them. It's a very harsh but, sentence. But as, as of, I know, as I know, you know, from your book, the counter responses, but then you're bringing Haitian conditions to America and that the, the Haiti being awful cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, you'll see, you say the same thing about preventive detention of young black males in the U S to say, well, on the one hand, it's very unfair to them that they get rounded up for when they haven't done anything. On the other hand, if they were out statistically, they'd have a high crime rate. And, you know, of course there's the standard answer, which is it doesn't matter how high the crime rate is. We should never do it. And again, that sounds good, but I think that that is a bit unreasonable. I think the reasonable thing is, well, how bad is it, right? Is their crime rate really so bad that it is that is justifiable to go and punish a bunch of innocent people? And I would say, you know, that's not true for young black American males, and it's not true for people from any country I've heard of. See, Although, this is, logically speaking, it could be that high, but I just don't see it. I mean, this is the major objection I have to your book, that you're – you're treating citizens and non-citizens. You seem to be giving them equal moral weight. And maybe that's somehow true or right, but that's certainly not the view of most Americans. So most Americans would say, well, yeah, if you're an American citizen, we will give you the presumption of innocence and we'll give you all these rights. But we want to be more, you know, practical for non-U.S. citizens. Right. So let me do this way. I mean, so like when I was I was having this email argument with Mark Krikorian, who's the head of the Center for Immigration Studies, the most influential anti-immigration think anti-immigration think tank in America, maybe the world. And I was just giving this hypothetical and say, okay, so if you could go and either save one American or X foreigners, what's the value of X that makes you indifferent? Right. So you don't even have to say that you're treating foreigners as being of equal moral worth as Americans. Just give me a number. Right. Give me something to work with. Now, he refused to answer the question. And he said, oh, it's a hypothetical. I don't answer that. But I think we both know hypotheticals are a way of figuring out what's going on in the world. And I think the reason why he didn't want to give a number was that if he gave a number that was too high, he would seem like he was truly xenophobic and just a, a deeply unfair person. But if he gave a number that was too low, then I could be right. Yeah. And so he didn't want to answer the question. So, I mean, I would say that you know, we can even say we're going to give Americans much higher weight. And still, I think that these arguments that I'm giving have some force as long as you don't give foreigners a weight of zero. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so there's that. And then, you know, the other issue is 
you know, go back to the, uh, the Jim Crow era era and imagine talking to a white Southerner then. And I think a lot of their position would be saying, well, look, you know, you know, look, you know, you say they're citizens. I don't really consider them full citizens. So that's why, well, yeah, if we gave them equal moral worth, we would treat them differently. But, you know, I say that, you know, that's really just, you know, like, like white Americans are the full citizens and the others, well, you know, and, you know, and, and again, like, like, you know, and if you were to just say, well, that's wrong because the, a true citizen is the following, it's the, it's the modern definition. There is something weird about that because you could say, look, our whole position is that they're not full citizens. And if you're going to go and call me a racist for that, you're basically begging the question of whether or not they are entitled to equal moral treatment. So that is the kind of thing that does weigh in my mind is that our, our view of who is, who a citizen is has changed. And, to go and and if really your view is that until we acknowledge that people are citizens, that then it is okay to do preventive detention. That is the kind of thing that seems hard to really believe. Well, well, a, a kind of is that you're taking a universal view, and if we admit a large number of people who give weight to their ethnic group, they'll destroy hmm. you game theoretically, because you're going to give them equal weight to you. They're going to give far more weight to their group. And so they'll outcompete you, right? That destroy sounds grossly overblown. They might have some. Okay, out, out compete. You're right. That that, <laughs> yeah. that does something. Yes, yeah, right. so, yeah, so I do. I have this uh, blog post that I was just rereading on this idea. So basically, it says, look, you may not care about your ethnic identity, but ethnic identity cares about you. So if you're just Mr. Universal Human Being, but there's other people who are advancing the interests of Albanians, then the Albanians are going to win. All right, and. First glance, all right, so that sounds kind of plausible, but then, you know, there's a couple things to keep in mind. So one, of course, is the general point that participation in, participation in politics is selfishly a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So you say it's not true that I'm destroying myself. Rather, actually, I am saving my resources for myself while they go and do something that is not actually selfishly helpful. Now, you may say, well, that's just my point is they're going to get the upper hand because they've solved their collective action problem more effectively. But then there's a deeper question of, well, there's an opportunity cost. So while they're going and trying to go and get political influence, I'm here going and trying to go and advance my home business, right? And there's this great line from Thomas Sowell where he mentions that th many of the most successful ethnic groups in America have no famous leaders, mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and he says, like, almost every American can name some success, some some big African-American leaders. And how well has that worked out for their group? Not too well. On the other hand, hardly anyone can name a single Japanese-American leader. Hardly anyone uh, now can name a single Hindu-American leader. And yet those groups are the most successful ones in America. And even probably because they have focused their energies on more productive routes to success rather than politics, which is mostly even for people that get active and involved, a dead end. And then, of course, there's the last point of people are often wrong about what advances their own interests mm -hmm. because politics is really complicated and it's not just a matter of turning up a dial to get more for your group, but rather you need to figure out which dials actually will help your group. So, I mean, I would just say that while – and you can write a model where what you're saying is true. The real world looks very different. And I'd say that you know, it's not true that groups that have higher cohesion actually are more successful. Right. And so and, you know, and so, you know, like, and, and furthermore, of course, 
the other thing is that if there's a lot of groups doing it, then you often just cancel each other out. So um, I haven't heard this for a while, but about 20 years ago, there was a fair amount of talk among African-American leaders saying we need to be worried about Hispanic immigration because there's only room for one big minority in America and we want to be it. Right. And it is true that Hispanic, people are you know, paying more, a lot more attention to Hispanics than they used to. And I think it really has crowded out concerns over African-American issues, which if you think that their leaders have got it all figured out about how to go and make America a better just society, that's bad. On the other hand, if, as I do, you think that their leaders are people that have messed things up and really it would be better if they had just gone and focused on the bourgeois path to success, then it's a very different story and it'd be good if they would just lose their influence. Well, we, we do see in a lot of poor countries, right, there are ethnic groups and they, they kill – I mean they, they do horrible things to each other to gain influence. Right. And Yes, yes. So – and again, you know, this this to me is the thing where you say, do you think that if you let in the people from those countries, they would just do the same thing to each other here? And here again, like we could sit around you know, coming up with thought experiments or we could go and look at the facts. So you know, in Israel and Palestine, Israelis and Palestinians kill each other. Mm-hmm. However, we have let in a lot of immigrants from both groups and they don't kill each other here. You know, what's what's going on? So partly they're just not so close to each other, but you know sometimes they actually are within convenient driving distance of each other. They could go and drive to the you know to the other neighborhood and start some trouble. I think a lot of what's going on is that both groups just realize it's hopeless to try to get power in America. You know, Palestinians will never rule America. Israelis will never rule America. So a lot of the problem is they have hope back home. Back home mm-hmm. they have they have hope of getting power and winning, and then they struggle. And a lot of what's so wonderful about a big country is that these the, these ancient hatreds die because people lose hope of winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's certainly plausible. Um, you you write that you would like to build a wall around the welfare state, mm-hmm. so people aren't coming here just to get that. But do you think that's likely? I mean, we have Democratic candidates now saying we should give free health care to illegal immigrants in this country. Does it seem? I mean, we we could both agree to that, but isn't it more plausible that once we have a lot of people here, they're going to get the same welfare benefits as U.S. citizens? Well, I'd say the plausible thing is the status quo continues. That should always be your default. And the status quo, there are a lot of different limits on immigrants' eligibility. So one part of Clinton's welfare reform was this five-year waiting period for immigrants to get federal benefits. Sometimes state governments pick up the slack, but that's the federal rule. Uh, for Social Security, you have to have full-time earnings for 10 years, so if you come when you're elderly, you're not able to get those benefits. So there are already a bunch of limits, so it's not just a pie-in-the-sky idea that you can have more of these. And again, I think a lot of this is that given the current way that people argue about immigration, then you know either you'll be Republican – Republicans are trying to restrict immigration more or Democrats trying to expand their eligibility. But I say, look, if, you're, if your real concern is immigrant abuse of the welfare state – and you know, obviously Republicans are going to be the main ones worrying about this. How about you take all of that energy and anger that you have directed against immigrants indiscriminately and target it laser-like on eligibility, right? So imagine if Trump, instead of going and engaging in a long list of petty executive cruelties against immigrants, or if or trying to go and pass new laws to go and reduce legal immigration, so he did try it but failed, imagine if his primary thing had just been on restricting welfare eligibility, uh, I don't know, but I think it is more. I think it is quite likely that he could have made that pass in his first term. Mm-hmm. I think he could have pulled that off if he had just given a very clear and principled statement saying, "Look, I'm not opposed to immigrants at all, but you know, Americans should not have to go and support them. That's not fair." 
And so rather than going and restricting immigration, what we're going here is we're going to reduce the benefits so we can feel safe and comfortable, the people coming here are coming here for the right reasons. I think that is a case that you actually could have made and made effectively. Of course, Trump is not the kind of guy to try to come up with a narrow, targeted solution to a specific problem. And so that didn't happen. But, you know, you know, I mean, you know, here's the thing is that, you know, like when people have complaints about immigration, often I'll say, you know, like you have some very legitimate concerns, but your solution is very unfair. Like you want to go and do an indiscriminate group punishment against immigrants in general instead of saying these are my concerns and let's go and tailor a solution for that. And, you know, honestly, I will say if I could go and talk to Republicans who would say we'll get behind immigration if only you can go and help us come up with a list of ways of dealing with problems that really worry us and if they're reasonable problems like immigrants coming to abuse the welfare state, you know, I would do that for free for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd be really happy to help someone who said, look, I like I like immigrants, but I don't want U.S. taxpayers taken advantage of. And I'd say that's a very fairly put statement. And if I can get you on my side, I'm on your side for that. But this means that if Elizabeth Warren is president, becomes president, you, that makes the weaker case for open borders. If the new policy is we have to give full benefits to anyone physically in our country. Yeah. So, you know, like every time that you go and expand eligibility, then it messes up the fiscal numbers. And yeah, I'll say that. When I, so I have a chapter where I'm estimating the net fiscal cost of immigration, mm-hmm. and this was a chapter where when I was going over the numbers, the more time you spend on it, the more you're like, damn it, immigrants are eligible for this benefit. It's messing up the numbers. <laughs> right now, the numbers in the end still come out positive and not just positive for the average immigrant that the U.S. now accepts or high-skilled immigrants. They come out positive even for low-skilled immigrants as long as they're young. But yes, uh, for Europe, it's probably going to be less favorable, although it's a little complicated for Europe because so much of the revenue comes from value-added taxes, which are paid even by illegal workers. Right. So, but yeah, probably the uh, fiscal effects are less positive in Europe. But yeah, it's true that it does weaken the case. Again, the main thing I just say is if you have a case that's super strong, it can get a lot weaker and still be airtight. And that's a lot of what I say in the book is that we, you know, I could be greatly overly optimistic about the benefits and greatly overly optimistic about the costs. And still, when we go and crunch the numbers, it still it comes out to being a great deal and not just a great deal for the migrants, but a great deal for natives, too. Well, well let's talk about those numbers. Let's say we have a low-skilled immigrant comes over with, mm-hmm. you know, a, a husband and wife and two children. And I mean, the, the the education costs of these two children are high. Isn't it like around ten thousand dollars a year? Yeah, for like, more like, like twelve. Okay, for for twelve thousand dollars a year. Probably, for... Now probably more like thirteen, because most of those numbers are eight years out of date. So yeah. Okay, and that's for yeah. you know all throughout high school, mm-hmm. and that's I mean most that that's it's very unlikely the immigrants are going to pay that much in taxes if they stay low skilled. Right. So here's the thing. Uh, there are a lot of estimates that look at this for native-born, and for native-born, it's much less favorable because you have the taxpayers had to pay for the parents too. Mm-hmm. So that's the main thing is when you have you know, two grown immigrant parents with two kids, that is basically half the cost for Americans, or if you go and adjust for time value of money, it's actually even less than half because the parents get the education first. Uh, and then second thing is that there is quite a bit of work done on – upward mobility of immigrants. And here is a well-established fact. There's a recent paper on this showing it goes back a long time, but I'd seen other results on this, which is that if you go and look at the eventual economic status of the kids of low-skilled natives, 
it tends to be a little bit better than their parents because of usual regression to the mean, but only a bit better. On the other hand, if you look at the average economic status of the children of low-skilled foreigners, it's much higher, right? So it's still going to be worse, of course, than if they were from the kids of high-skilled foreigners. But there is a lot of upper mobility, which just captures the fact that part of the reason why low-skilled foreigners are lower-skilled is because they just didn't have the same advantages that Americans had. And so their kids who grow up here, are they're just from a different mindset and of course possibly different genetics as well so when you when you, you know you know so when i have a blog post where i go over this but you know the the odds that say you know the child of a indian guy working at 7-eleven goes to mit <laughs> are astronomical compared to a native-born guy working at 7-eleven and his kids going to mit yeah I mean, the indian those are the most successful group and we yeah we, yeah but you know but you know, of course the first generation often really struggles you know, we think about the ones that were pro, that were successful programmers in India and they come here, but there's also a lot where you know they didn't really learn very good English and they don't have those skills and they're working in 7-Eleven, but their kids, nevertheless, their status is much more predicted probably by the rank of the immigrant in their home society rather than the rank of their parent in this society. There's India's a really weird situation though. It seems that the upper caste Indians are genetically kind of distinct from lower caste Indians. This is just preliminary. Just bit, yeah. But yeah. it's really um, it's really yeah. weird that it's like you yeah. almost have to want to count them as different population groups. Yeah, I mean, you know, so like like and yes in terms of DNA that's totally right. And actually if you know Greg Clark's book uh, the the sun also rises. He has a chapter in there on India, and India has the lowest level of intergenerational social mobility that is on of any known society. To the point where it's something like a you know like if you if you if you sort of just throw out random noise, then it's then it's almost a correlation of one from grandparent to grandchild. So yeah, they are a very separate population. But again, you know the the Indian example is a especially stark one. But you know, there, there is just a very general pattern that people that are foreign-born or working low-skilled jobs in the U.S. from virtually any country are much more likely to have their kids be successful than natives, right? Which you can chalk up to great immigrant values or genetics or some combination of the two. That I mean, I think that's unreasonable to lump immigrants. I mean, we get you know people from Russia who come over at you know 14 and they already know calculus. Yeah. That's very different from yes. someone who came from a refugee camp in a country mm -hmm. where none of their relatives had ever known algebra. You're, you're right, get... right. Yeah, so there's a recent paper they break it down by every country. Mm -hmm. right? And you know, it's, if, you know, virtually every country that you study, the you know, like if you look at, say, immigrant parents at the 25th percentile of the U.S. income distribution, their and the, their kids still winds up doing way better than the kids of native-born Americans at the 25th percentile. And then, you know, similarly, if you just look at, you know, like people who are high, you know, foreigners who are high school dropouts, Foreigners mm -hmm. high school dropouts, their kids are much more likely to end up with a higher level of education than the kids of American high school dropouts. Um, but they're still below the American mean, though, right? They don't they don't yeah, regress so, to the American mean. They regress. So to if yeah, so if your parents are dro are dropouts, then yeah, your predicted status would be below the fiftieth percentile of the U.S. If your kids are high school graduate, or rather, your parents are high school graduates and you're foreign born, then I think you will actually be over the yeah, over over the over the median for the U.S. Well, you know, of course, a lot of this comes down to where's the percentile of natives that you think are actually the the, the people would be better off if they didn't exist. 
Yeah, well, right. a lot of Americans are not fiscal burdens on, I mean, the government. Right. That's because we have well, a very progressive tax system. So, well, so here's the thing: is you know, there is a lot of work that's been done on this, and actually, it was relevant to my second book, which is "Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids." A, a common reaction of people to that book is, well, rich people should be having more kids, poor people should be having less kids, right? You know, people don't like to say it, but a lot of people have told me privately that. But yeah. you know, there is a literature that just tries to estimate what is the net fiscal effect of a new baby born in the U.S. And for the median one, it's very high. And again, why so high? Again, a lot of it comes down to this non-rivalry, right? There's a lot of things the government does where the cost doesn't depend on population. So like defense so, spending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So defense spending, national debt service. And so this means that you, you can have a very progressive tax system and yet the median person can still pull their weight. People at the 40th, 30th percentile can still pull their weight. You know, there is, of course, it's the empirical question, what's the cutoff? But the cutoff is not the median and it's not the means for sure. Even when you take into account, I mean, the cost of school? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, of course, that's the most basic thing to, uh, that people factored in. But, yeah, so, you know, like I did read these papers uh, where people are estimating, this would have you know, nothing to do with immigration. It's just, you know, new baby gets born. Should U.S. taxpayers celebrate or 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 or, or, or frown? Uh, and the answer is that for the you know, for the average one, then I think a typical estimate 15 years ago was like plus 300,000. Okay. Right? So very large. You know. Now again, of course, you can then say let's fiddle with the dial for how much is rival or non-rival, right? And again, and the deeper story is that a new baby born is generally a fiscal loss for their locality, but a fiscal gain for America. Because mm -hmm. local government pays for the education, but uh, but uh, the federal government pays for Social Security, Medicare, and things like that. So you know there have been and you know and this also works for low skilled immigrants too. So low skilled immigrants plausibly are bad for California and Texas because uh, or at least the uh, fiscally because there's so much spending for the poor comes at the state and local level, mm -hmm. but still can be uh, still likely to be a net fiscal gain for the consolidated U.S. budget when you do federal, state, and local. And there have been some people who have said that the federal government should basically go and reimburse states partly for the fact that the, they're letting in people that are good for the country but bad for the state or locality. And there, there's, there's some sense to that. Mm -hmm. right? And by the way, so what are countries where new babies are, you know, are actually a burden? So the number one uh, list of this research is Saudi Arabia. Oh, that's that's because the citizens get a pile of oil money. Yeah. Right. So, if, yeah, if you have another baby in Saudi Arabia, you really are primarily just diluting the value of the oil pool of other existing Saudi citizens. But you do have to get to countries like that before you before standard estimates from people who don't seem to me to have a big dog in the fight anyway, uh, say that a new baby is actually a burden on society on net. Of course, you know, initially you're a burden, right, because you don't work initially. But. The right way to do it is with a fiscal protection of what's going to happen over the course of your lifetime and so on. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, if you do it really well, then you want to factor in their kids too, as you've been suggesting. So, mm -hmm. you want to do all of that. And mm -hmm. you know, papers that have done this generally come up with a really high value for native babies. And then for immigrant babies, like, you know, you know there's the, just the fact that you didn't have to pay for their parents. But uh, so, you know, I guess that wouldn't go into the math, but well, that's okay. the kind of thing to keep in mind. What about someone who's very concerned about climate change and would argue that, uh, well, if we let a whole bunch of poor people come to rich countries, they'll, they'll be a greater carbon footprint for our species? Yeah, so I never know which way people are going to go with this question because there's two totally different routes. One is there's going to be a lot of climate, climate refugees, so don't we need to get open borders sooner in order to rescue them? Mm -hmm. right? And that's more often from a left-wing audience, and that's the one where I can just say, okay, great. 
Uh, but then this other one, which also could come from sort of a more misanthropic <laughs> left-wing audience. Uh, well, if we go and let people get rich, they're going to start polluting, and then it's going to ruin the planet. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there is the background implication of if you believe this, then you should also be rooting against economic growth in poor countries, are you? Right now, in a way, you could say that's not really a very fair question because people don't want because they don't want to admit that they're rooting for continued horrible poverty in Bangladesh. But mm -hmm. still, they might say, well, yeah, it's the only way to save the planet. So, yeah, I guess, yeah, too bad. I mean, ideally, we would go and give up some of our incredible surplus to and help desperately poor people. But if we're not going to do that, let's hope that they stay mired in poverty. Uh, now, what is the real view? Or you know, what is the reasonable view that is not constrained by the fear of someone biting your head off? I think the you know, reasonable view comes down to this environmental Kuznets curve. So you probably know about it, but most people don't. Mm -hmm. So, But the idea is that when you really look at the data, here's what you see. Economic development at first makes pollution worse because people be previously were living on the, the, the meagerest level suddenly start having a, de a better life and there's more pollution from that. But then... If, as when economic growth continues, eventually they get so rich that they can afford to go and clean things up, and then they do, right? So this was actually one of the main arguments of Clinton's econ, uh, econ team for NAFTA, where they said, well, environmental Kuznets curve, we want Mexico to clean up, then we need to get better economic growth in Mexico in order to get them rich, so then they will have the resources to stop polluting so much, right? So this is, I think, what the reasonable point of view is, and says, look, you know, economic growth is going to happen one way or another, but it's better if we can get people over the hump sooner. And that's what Open Borders is about. It's about fast-forwarding to the future world that I think is close to inevitable where we just get rid of absolute poverty, but instead of doing it over the course of the next 100, 150 years, we do it over the course of the next 30 years. I mean, I think I your think argument makes a lot of sense for most types of pollution, certainly pollution that harms you in the city, but not for, you know, these global pollution where, you know, with carbon dioxide, where you're just as hurt by as everyone else. Cause then well, so, you know, so in terms of the data, I think this totally works, actually. So, you know, you see, you know, the like the carbon intensity of GDP has been going down in rich countries for quite a while. Right. And you know, part of that is regulation. You might say, why would every any country have this regulation when it's just for the benefit of the whole planet? But the answer is almost every country has this regulation. You know, the problem with the regulation is not the countries won't do it because every country is only out for its national self-interest. That doesn't seem to be true. The problem is that they blow so many resources and in highly ineffective carbon reduction techn techniques rather than actually doing it evidence based and trying to figure out the best way to get the most bang for your buck. So, you know, my view is, you know, like the best way to get the most bang for your buck would be to take the resources you're putting into regulation and just create a giant prize for new technology patent-free for carbon reduction, mm -hmm. right? And say, you know, here's a $100 billion prize if you can go and do this, right? You know, that would probably be – and then we share it freely with the world. That would probably be the best use. But it's just not true that countries will not do uh, pollution reduction if there are big spillovers in other countries, Um you know, like as to why, you know, of course, there's this international environmental movement, which uh, has, you know, which has great influence. And you know, if only they would be more evidence based, then they could I think they'd actually get stuff done right now. It's a very mixed bag, in my view. But yeah, you know, I mean, they, they seem to be the doing passion, not they, just not the right, the right. And again, like they said, so they sort of think of all science as natural science and then forget about social science, which is what they really need to learn. I mean, they seem to be doing more harm than good with opposing atomic power. Yeah, yeah, more coal yeah plants. of course. Yeah, well, here we got a technology that already exists that's 
highly scalable, like nearly pollution free. But you know, you know, there are some environmentalists who are pro nuclear power, but they are the really smart ones and the really <laughs> evidence based ones, but not the most influential ones, and definitely not the ones that are 14 years old and getting on social media. Yeah. You know, if we could just get a 14-year-old Swedish kid saying, you know, you know, let's see, my, let me remember my Swedish accent. You know, we really need to have lots of nuclear power now. <laughs> nuclear power is awesome for the planet. If we could just get those kids, uh, they're like on TV. Then I say, all right, great. But uh, you know, they're not uh, around as far as I can tell, or at least not prominent. Yeah, the media isn't giving them exposure. Yeah, well, so, maybe they exist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, what if you were a partisan Republican? And that you really cared a lot about the Republican Party doing well. Would you still favor open borders? Here's what I say. In the short run, no. But in the long run, yes, because I don't think, you know, like I would say, look, we're not going to win this. We're not going to go and uh, and get immigration down to a really low, to a low level. So we can either keep doing what we're doing and make enemies of a big of a growing part of the population or we can go and change our tune and try to bring them into our coalition. And if someone said that's not possible, I, uh, then as a partisan Republican, I would say Reagan did it. He's the best Republican that of the 20th century, wasn't he? Right. I mean, of course, a lot of people don't even remember him now, but just in terms of who is a partisan Republican, you could really feel good about who you can listen to his speeches and just say, yeah, well, that was my president. I think it'd be pretty hard to come up with anyone that was in Reagan's ballpark I mean, we don't have any recordings of Lincoln, so plausibly Reagan is the very best recorded Republican president of all time. And to go and say, look, 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 he had a can-do attitude. We're Americans, not Americans. We can, should, will, and must win over these immigrants by, and show them that the American dream is for them and tell them that people, uh, you know, pe people like uh, that are trying to go and preach socialism to them or the very people that they were running away from, you know, so, you know, like, you know, you know, if we could go and, you know, so like, as a, like, honestly, as a partisan Republican, what I'd be doing right now would be to say, we want every Venezuelan here. We want everyone who suffered under this horrible socialist monstrosity to be here because this is the land of the free, the home of the brave. And we want you to tell your story. But we want you know, Venezuelans on American TV all the time talking about the evils of socialism. We want there to be Venezuelan congressmen that are that are there to go and say, you know, you know, don't tell me about socialism. I know what it is, and the last thing I want is to see one bit of it here in America. That's what I would do as a partisan Republican. See, I'd be afraid that the Venezuelans think that you know Chavez failed because he wasn't a true socialist. Yeah. So. You know, I will say, so I've met a lot of Venezuelan refugees. There, none, none of them have anything good to say about that regime. And uh, so let's see, if I got them to, yeah, so if I, I'm trying to, so not, I haven't gotten every single one to actually talk about socialism. There's one that I had, you know, who's an Uber driver in Madrid, who's actually a big Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, definitely she hated the government of Venezuela. So... You know, and you know, and of course, you know, this is the kind of thing where a lot of people can suffer in a regime and not really know what went wrong. Right. But a lot of political entrepreneurship is about telling them, and people believe their friends. People well, believe their friends. So you know, I like, think you know, like so Cubans, you know, like you know, like were Cubans anti-socialism before Castro? Uh, probably not. But still, you know, like you know, Cubans who fled, very anti-Castro, and any talk of that kind really, uh, really does set them on edge. I just in Little Havana. 
I would not stick my neck out and start talking about how socialism wasn't really tried when I was if I was there. Right? Well, Cuba is a, a special of, case, though, right? The, the Cubans who came here were fleeing Castro, and they, they tended well, to be Well, what do you think the, Venezuela, the Venezuelans that come here are doing? Right? They're trying to flee, uh, you know, flee Maduro totally. Like they're all over well, you know, any country that will take them. But again, this is something where you have a lot of people who have much inchoate anger, right? And then there's the question of who should they blame for all of this? I'd say a lot of people don't really know who to blame. But if you go and take them under your wing and say and welcome them and say, you know, like you like we we care about you, you are like your enemies are our enemies, and then you go and really try recruiting them and bringing them in and telling them your narrative, I think that is one of the most fruitful recruit pools that you could ever hope for. But you're, you're going to have there's a lot more have, likely that you can convert Venezuelans to being Republicans than converting, say, you know, you know Mexican Americans to Republicans. They've already picked their team, and you're really going to it's going to take a lot of work to go and undo the negativity. But a new group, you know, that's where they are primed for a tipping point. I, I don't know. I, I don't agree. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, probably a lot of the variation in political views are genetic. So people who, you know, they, they elected socialist leaders are probably going to be more open to socialist pleas and more open to the idea that, you know, Venezuela collapsed because the 1% ripped you off. So we need higher taxes on the rich, higher minimum wage laws, you know, more breaking up industries. Right. So, you know, like, you know in my uh, second book, Selfish Reason to Have More Kids, I do talk about this evidence on the genetics of politics. And you're not wrong. So, you know, you know twin studies will say that there is a moderate genetic component. But, of course, these studies are all done on people who are growing up in the very same country. So it doesn't give you an idea about the full range of variation. So if you just know how much politics have changed in the world and over time, then there's no way that genetics can be anything like most of the story. It's the way that you had an Eastern Bloc where everyone was going around talking about how great socialism was, and then that just stopped. You, know, you might say that people are just lying there, but there was a genuine period of enthusiasm which then went away, and you know, partly just uh, is the virtue of experience. And then, he said, so you know, in the book I talk about this research by Alex Rasta on political assimilation, and it does seem like there is high political assimilation. So first-generation Italians may come saying Mussolini's really great, but their kids don't like Mussolini, right? And you know, I think you know, part, part of you know, what's disturbing about things like socialist Somalian congresspeople is you realize this isn't what they got from Somalia. This is what they picked up in college here. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, and this is the kind of thing where, you know, like you say, like, even if, you know, like, like you know, there is some moderate genetic component, it's important to keep it in perspective and realize it's something, it's not zero, but it's, you know, it's nothing close to full. Think about all the people you know who have dramatically changed their political views over the course of their life without having any genetic engineering on them at all. Right. But the can do thing is not to say there's some genetic part, but to say, all right, yes, how can I change people's minds anyway? And, you know, I think a, a great deal of changing people's minds is first just convincing that you're their friend. So I have this old blog post called The Respect Motive where I say, you know, we can get a very good prediction of how people vote just by asking which party respects them more. Yeah. Right. So just go down occupations. You know, which party respects lawyers more? Democrats. Well, lawyers are very heavily Democratic despite the fact they're rich. All right. Which party respects doctors more? Yeah, probably more likely Republicans or veterans is really clear case, which party respects police more. Right. And you can go down the list and you can actually get some fairly striking results where just because people sense that you were on their side and you have their back and but especially that you just have a favorable attitude towards them, 
that's a big part of getting on your team. And, you know, this is where I talk about, you know, Indian Americans. Based upon their views, you would think that they would be solidly Republican because not only are they the richest ethnic group in America, but they are also the most socially conservative group that I can find in the data, right? They have the very highest rate of 1950s Leave it to Beaver families of any group I can find in America, right? Mm -hmm. So like almost all their kids grow up in a home with two married, with, with two, their two married parents, and yet they're 80% Democratic. And you're saying like, why are they so Democratic given that their issue views seem to be almost nothing to do with what the Democratic Party is about these days? And I think the answer is Democrats are nicer to them. Democrats don't go and look at them funny when they're wearing their outfits or they have a dot on their heads. They just get a sense of Democrats respect us more than Republicans. And again, to me, if I were a partisan Republican, my first thing would be start being nice to everyone that might vote for us. It doesn't cost us anything, right? And, and like, and we're and particularly like people who have a, just a bad attitude, who are hostile to other human beings, people who are misanthropic. They don't belong in our party. You know, Reagan was an optimistic, can-do guy. He's our real leader. We need to be like him, right? So that's really what I would say. And now you say, well, this isn't going to help us win the next election. It's probably true, but you say, look, you know, if as a partisan Republican, I don't care about the next election so much as the entire future of our party. I care about long-run strategy, right? And like, like, can this thing really work? Yeah, you know, so like in 1960, if Republicans had said we're going to win over Democrat, we're going to we're going to win, win over Democratic Catholics, people would have just laughed in your face and said that like that's going to happen. Catholics, mm -hmm. as we all know, they've been Democrats for 100 years; they're going to stay Democrats. But and again, like that's not totally wrong at the moment, but that's an attitude for losers. And winners instead will have the attitude, you know, not yet, but we haven't tried hard enough. Like, like, who here even knows any Democratic Catholics? Has anyone talked to them? Are you friends with them? Like, like, how, like, like, are we saying things and doing things that might make them feel like we are jerks? Well, knock that off, right? That is my view about how people win. And, and by the way, this is of course the kind of thing that everyone can use. So, you know, socialists could use this in order to win more people over, and I think they would have been a hell of a lot more successful if they had. You know, like my my view is genuinely that communism would have been much more successful if instead of murdering religious people, they had gone and treated them really nicely and brought them into the system as junior partners. If every socialist regime, every Marxist regime had just dropped all of that Marxist stuff about the opening of the people and had just said, look, as long as you are totally subservient to us, we love you guys. And Jesus <laughs> is a socialist, of course. If that had been what Marxist parties around the world had done, you know, I think they would have been vastly more effective. But they just picked an enemy for no reason, someone that they could, a group that they that is very large, and they wouldn't have asked for all that much. But they they didn't they wanted respect. They certainly didn't want to have their churches burned and have their priests executed in mass, right? And <laughs> and again, and and, and, and you know, I've heard people say, no, 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 they couldn't have done that because they wouldn't weren't, weren't willing to share power. And I'll say. You could have people be nice little loyal app dogs, <laughs> and 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 as long as they feel safe and like you know, like them, and if they start talking back, then they're good. Then they go to the gulag. That would have worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's certainly what Putin is doing now in Russia. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like it, it's what wise leaders do: is you make friends, right? If you make enemies, make sure there there are hardly any of them around, or may, better yet, they don't exist in your country. 
You know, so yeah, be like a Japanese anti-Semite. Although, you know, like do you think that would work? From that. Do you think that would work with Islam today? So that's an interesting question. So I remember, so before 9-11, it was actually not totally clear that Muslims were going to be Democrats. Yeah, Bush made a huge effort to get Muslims to vote Republican, I remember. Yeah, so so, so well, the first or the second Bush? Oh, the second Bush, I think. Yeah, so I remember he was making a lot of effort with Hispanics. So you, know, like, you, may, you, you could well be right for, uh, for Muslims, but... That was one where it was just getting very, you know, like, like given what other Republicans are saying, it's very hard for a presidential candidate to go uh, to go against what the general view in his party is. But before that, so you know, in the 90s, then I think that Muslims were still Democratic leaning, but it was after 9/11 that it became very strong, right? So again, it's the kind of thing that you could do in a year. I don't think so. It's the kind of thing that you could do over 20 years. Yeah, then I think you can pull it off. Uh, you know, in terms of how you want to frame it, I mean, I don't think I would just say there probably just aren't enough Muslims in America and aren't going to be enough that this is one where you where just in terms of sheer political Machiavellianism, you want to put a lot of a lot of your energy there. Probably better to put it into immigrants in general, mm-hmm. and yeah, and again, probably Hispanics. So Hispanics are a group where you know, you know George Bush really 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 did quite a bit better. Right. And, you know, like, like, and, you know, Texas Republicans have managed to do uh, fairly well Again, not uh, not majority. But, you know, Texas Republicans are able to get enough Hispanic votes that they can say that it can remain Republican state uh, has so far. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think would just as a again, as a matter of sheer political Machiavellianism, it would make sense to focus on immigrants in general and Hispanics for Republicans. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to say in, in closing? <laughs> Let's see. So, anything else? Certainly, this has been really, really wide-ranging. Uh, let's see. You know, yeah, I guess you know. One other thing is that it's always good to talk about immigration with fellow economists because there are some views out there that are so standard among non-economists, where regardless of their views on immigration, you have to spend a lot of time just saying, "All right, well, hold on. There's something you take is definitely true and it's actually debatable." Mm-hmm. So. You know, what I see is the main put, uh, you know, the main view of immigration among both Democrats and Republicans, people who are pro-immigration, anti-immigration, is basically that immigration is a form of charity. And mm-hmm. yeah, sure, other well, you want to let Albert Einstein in and things, and you know Sergey Brin, but other than a few people like that, it's just a matter of national charity to let in people from other countries. And then the debate is basically, should we be a charitable country that lets in a lot, or an America First country that doesn't let in very many? And then there's always the argument of, well, shouldn't we take care of our own people first? So when you have that view of the world, it's very hard to make a good case for immigration. And the case that I think you get when when you're talking to economists is that it's not primarily charity. Rather, it's about you know, what I say, justice and especially abundance for economists. Again, just the idea that when you move labor from places where the productivity is low to where it's high – you enrich mankind, but you don't just enrich mankind. You enrich people who are not only the immigrants, but their customers, right? I mean, just the way that whenever there's a large increase in production, it's broadly beneficial. The Industrial Revolution didn't mainly help factory owners. Vaccines did not mainly help vaccine manufacturers. The Internet did not mainly help people who work in computers. Uber does not primarily help Uber drivers or certainly the Uber Corporation, which is yet to make money, <laughs> right? These are, these are ideas that economists can get pretty easily, 
and I think it's true, and it's one where it just completely change, changes your view of what immigration is about from how many can we afford to are there any that aren't worthwhile. Yeah, I think that comes from like zero-sum thinking. It's the view that, well, we should take billionaires' money because them having it means yeah. we have less. But no, yeah. I constantly, well, what, what incentives have you changed? Maybe billionaires getting richer might mean we all get even richer. You know, we all get richer too. Yeah, and especially the idea that the value of a good is inherent in the good rather than in where it is and the right. complementary goods. So, you know, really it's true the 19th century people would share a, ship, a sail a ship to Antarctica, fill it full of ice, and then sail it to the equator before the ice melts. Right. And people would do this. And it's like, look, it's the same physical ice. What's the difference about which continent it's on? And it's like it makes all the difference in the world. It's worthless in Antarctica and it's a valuable commodity in the Caribbean. And I say the same thing goes for human beings. There are many people who right now contribute next to nothing to the world economy who are fully capable of doing a lot if they could just be in a different place. And that's what Open Borders is all about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with you because I'm mostly afraid of the political implications, and my first choice would be an experiment. I yeah, feel like we, we get some small country yeah. to do it. We get uh, give, give, Norway yeah. to like, I'll, I'll talk, like I'm always someone who says I'll take what I can get. Yeah, so give me an experiment. Um, my only worry is I'd like to pre-register the experiment <laughs> yeah. so we agree on what counts as success because, yes, I, I know that no matter what happens, people will call it a failure. We could go and have a massive growth in GDP. We it could be full of skyscrapers, and people will be complaining about lack of affordable housing, or oh, there'll be a little like, or there could be you know a low crime rate, but there's one high-profile terrorist attack in the city, and then people say, "Aha, see what a terrible idea." So, you know, it should be an experiment. But let it be pre-registered where we agree in advance what counts as success or failure, and then I would be the first person in line to say, "Yes, let's do it." Well, would a charter city work? I mean, let's imagine we bought big part of Congo from from the Congo from the Congolese government. It couldn't be that expensive. Then we said, all right, it's going to be run by U.S. administrators, you know, U.S. justice and all that. And but anyone in the world can come here. Yeah, I mean, so, I'm you know, so, that, you know, like I'm a big fan of charter cities. Idea. I actually did a memo, memo to the Bill Gates Foundation saying. They should have spent their money on charter cities. <laughs> the Gates Foundation has a bizarre practice, at least they did some years ago, where first they decide how to spend their money, and then they ask people if, they were, if they're wrong. <laughs> and I was one of the people who was asked, so we've already decided to go and spend it on something that I thought was a terrible idea. And I, I actually wrote them a memo saying, what you're doing is worse than nothing. And, I, and then they said, well, what about charter cities? And I said, yeah, charter cities would have been much better than nothing. So anyway, I wrote this memo, and yeah, I think that would be great. Again, you know, my dream is actually that it's a charter city run by Google. Yeah. Right. I think Google would be a much better, do a much better job than the U.S. government. The Walmart. And, you'd want someone yeah. used to yeah, dealing yeah, Walmart, with yeah, skilled labor. Walmart, Walmart do it. I think, yeah. I think it'd be easier to talk Google into doing it just because it's so cutting edge and futuristic. But Walmart's you – know, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, sorry, so something uh, funny just happened. Okay. But anyway, yeah, so yeah, I mean, like you know, Google seems more likely to try something so innovative, so uh, so off the wall, so outside the box. But yeah, like Walmart, you know, these are companies that when you really study what they do, they're so great at what they do, and it's so easy to write a book going making fun of them. But did you know you didn't build that? You didn't build Walmart. <laughs> if you could build anything, one percent as good as Walmart, you'd be an amazing person. So yeah, those companies. Are have already remade the world so much for the better, and just to see what else they could do would be great. 
All right. Well, um, uh, thank you very much, Brian, for being on our podcast. And again, it's Brian Kaplan and Zach Wienersmith wrote Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. And Brian is on Twitter at Brian underscore Kaplan. And I'm on Twitter at Jim D. Miller. And uh, thank you very much for your time, Brian. Oh, this was awesome. Thanks so much.